Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America. Good evening and welcome to this Friday night edition of Liberal Fix Radio. It is Friday, May 6th, and I'm your host, Keith Breckis, uh, broadcasting again. Uh, I'm working uh, on a campaign in Arizona, so I'm broadcasting from the beautiful city of Flagstaff. And um, tonight we will have a pre-recorded interview with Gerald Moore, who is uh, uh, one time the editor of Life Magazine during its heyday in the 1960s. Um, so I haven't done much prep for this other than that I actually did the interview with him. So rather than uh, do a big build-up for it, I'll just kick right into the interview, and that'll be our show. It should be a really good uh, interview, though, because uh, Daryl Moore was a big figure in Life magazine at a time when, when they were um, sort of one of the big uh, top uh, magazines in the country. So it should be an interesting show, and I'll let Gerald Moore take it away. Tonight, our guest on Liberal Fix Radio is uh, Gerald Moore. He's the author of Life Story, the education of an American journalist. He was a writer and then editor at Life Magazine during its heyday from uh, 1965 to 1972. Um, so it should be a very interesting interview, especially for people who are familiar with that time period or grew up then, but also people who maybe just know it from history. Um, so how are you doing today, Gerald? Well, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I think it'll be uh, very interesting, and hopefully our listeners will find it the same way. Um, so you were uh, at uh, Life Magazine, and um, just just during that time period, maybe for people who aren't familiar, how powerful a role did Time and Life Magazines play in the American mind when you came aboard in in the early 1960s? And what did they bring their readers that newspapers, radio, and television doing? Well, I think the I think the time and life together were enormously powerful. Uh, the time, of course, uh, was produced every week as life was, and uh, time spoke with quite a lot of authority. I think it had very high credibility. Uh, <clears throat> I, I think time could shape the national conversation. Sometimes certainly helped to shape the national conversation about uh, a lot of things, politics, uh, cultural values, and one thing and another. Uh, I, I don't think that life was as, um, as immediately influential on uh, on culture, but because it was a big picture magazine, and and you you could see pictures without having to sit down and read a long essay. I think that it it had um, a, maybe a more subtle influence, but certainly a powerful one. Um, it, again, life had a lot of credibility, and uh, you know we had eight and a half million. Uh, we sent out eight and a half million copies every week, uh, so we probably had uh, maybe thirty or forty million people actually looking at the magazine in a given week. If you think about the population of the country at that time, maybe two hundred million people. You, you know, you're talking about a big chunk of the literate um, the literate population. Yeah, very much so. And um, in what ways did Life magazine in- in the 1960s, at least, spare no expense to get the story. Well, life from the very beginning. Life began in 1936, and it was it, oddly enough, it was really successful from the very outset. The first issue, they printed 375,000 copies, and four weeks later, they were printing a million copies a week. So it was there was tremendous demand for it, which meant that it made a lot of money uh, from the very beginning, and. 
the Luce, uh, Henry Luce and the other people that were involved in life in the beginning understood that that quality was going to be very important. And um, they started a, a kind of tradition of spending whatever they had to spend to produce a really first-class story and a, and a comprehensive story. So whatever was required, uh, it, you know, the reporters and, and photographers were understood that they could spend whatever they needed to spend to get the story. I mean, they weren't encouraged to be profited, but, um, you know, if you had to charter a plane or you had to hire someone or uh, do other expensive things or spend a lot of time, uh, sometimes the story would uh, would require two or three months, and that was okay. They would allow you to do that. It was um, It was a fabulous place to work, and I think in some ways it was unique because in the experience I had with and around newspapers, there was much more concern about how much money you were spending to get a story. To give us a glimpse at how Life Magazine produced so many iconic photos during the 1960s, um, could you tell us about covering Pope Paul VI's uh, October 1965 visit to New York? You shot you and your photographer, Art Rickerby, had captured the perfect cover shot but it turns out you were wrong. Um, why were you wrong, and what did uh, Life decide to put on the cover instead? Well, uh, I, I think that's a really good example. It, it relates to the question you just asked earlier about how, uh, you know, sparing no expense to get the story. Uh, in 1965, Pope Paul announced that he was going to come to the United States, and it would be the first time that a pope had visited uh, North America. So it was a historic visit. Uh, you know, there are a lot of Catholics in the country. They were very excited about the Pope coming. Um, and in order to cover this, we, the magazine assigned 26 photographers. We had a photographer who met the Pope when the Pope got up that morning. Uh, he met him in the Vatican and, and uh, rode with him to the airport and rode in the plane from from um, Italy to the United States to New York. It was, I think it was an 18-hour visit, and, uh, the, you know, the Pope went to the United Nations where he met Lyndon Johnson. He met the Archbishop. He said Mass at Yankee Stadium. He visited uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral. It was a whirlwind visit. But we had photographers all along the route in, at different stations. Um, I was uh, assigned two positions. One was across the street from St. Patrick's. We negotiated to, to use an office in Rockefeller Center that was on the second floor looking right down at the uh, entrance to St. Patrick's. I don't think we'd ever be allowed to do that today with all the security concerns, but, you know, we were just the, the width of the street from the Pope. Um, and when the Pope arrived in his limo, he <clears throat> got out and walked up to the front of the of the uh, St. Patrick's, and uh, just before he went in, he turned around and waved, and uh, the photographer, Art Rickaby, that I was working with, took a lot of pictures of that. And I said, you know, <clears throat> that's got to be the cover, the Pope um, waving to us from the front of in front of St. Patrick's. As the day went on, I, we, we finished our, our assignment there and we turned the film in. And then I went out to Yankee Stadium where he was saying Mass. And uh, when that was done, we, we took the film back into the city where it was processed. And I realized later that night, that the cover they had chosen was not the Pope in front of St. Patrick's, but it was the Pope saying Mass at Yankee Stadium. And it made perfect sense once I saw it, you know, that you see a lot of pictures of the Pope in front of cathedrals. But what says, what says Pope in America is the Pope in Yankee Stadium saying Mass. So 
it was a it was a moment when I learned some things about uh, you know the language of pictures, if you will. And uh, I was also part of this enormous effort that you know 26 of the probably the, among the best photographers in the world working all day long. We had piles of film to choose from at the end of the day, and we did a really wonderful big color. Um, I, I don't remember how many pages, but probably 10 or 12 pages of color of the Pope's visit. Wow, yeah, and I, and I can see why they probably chose that shot. I mean, it went to be more American sort of than, <laughs> than, <laughs> yeah. than the Pope coming there. So like you said, he's been in front of cathedrals before. <laughs> exactly, but if, yeah, they, they don't. There's, no, there's only one Yankee Stadium, isn't there? <laughs> or there, there only was one at that time, certainly. And your first national story for life, brought you to Los Angeles where you covered a party at which people were tripping on LSD. Um, why did they allow the photographer, Larry Schiller, to photograph them? And what did you know about LSD at the time? And did you consider taking the drug in order to better report the story? And if you considered taking it, did you actually take it? Well, uh, I guess the the thing, uh, one of the most important things about the LSD story at that time was that LSD was legal. It wasn't it not had been it had not been um, added to the list of of illegal drugs. And so, when people took it, they were not breaking the law, and therefore uh, they weren't uh, particularly worried about being photographed. Um, Taking it. The, what happened was that we we there was a group of people who were going to get together and take acid, and we found out about it and got them to agree to let us come um, be with them while they were doing that. Uh, it, it turned out to be a great disappointment because when people take uh, trip on acid, you know they don't do much. Nothing happens. They they sort of sit and sometimes they chuckle and sometimes they groan and sometimes they laugh, but they don't they, they don't interact at all. It's a uh, very, you know, private and internal event. You, you know, if people had been smoking pot or drinking, there would have been some talk and maybe some sexual overtones and so forth. But we had a hard time uh, coming up with good photographs because of that. Um, the I didn't know very much about LSD when we started the story, but, um, you know, we I did a lot of research quickly and I discovered that it was being used widely on the West Coast by a certain group of people. There were people on the East Coast who had used it, and a number of researchers were, were very interested in it. Um, Timothy Leary had, had started to proselytize uh, on behalf of LSD, and, and uh, Ken Kesey and the Mary Pranksters and some of those people were, were, were um, pushing it. They, they believed that it would change the world, that it would change human nature, that if you took a dose of acid or a few doses of acid, you would become more more uh, in touch with the universe, more kinder, uh, less violent. Um, it, they really felt that it would solve a lot of the problems of uh, mankind. So they were there was almost a religious zeal in some ways in um, in promoting the use of, of, of acid. We spent about uh, six weeks on, I think, on, on the story, and you know, it took us from from Los Angeles, where we photographed a lot of the uh, people using acid, or looking at light shows and so forth while they were using acid. We went down to Laredo, where they were the feds were trying uh, Timothy Leary. Uh, we went up to New York, where uh, upstate New York, where uh, 
some very wealthy people had uh, had turned a big estate over to Larry and his group to do uh, so-called research uh, on acid. And, uh, you know, we interviewed some uh, academic experts, Dr. Sidney Cohen at UCLA, and I think one of the surprises when we were doing the story was that we found out that that Henry Luce and Claire Boothless had both taken acid. They'd, they'd called up Dr. Sidney Cohen and said, we want to find out what this is all about. And he flew out from L.A. to their place in Arizona and gave them both, um, um, you know, doses of, of acid. And, and, and one of the odd things was that while they were tripping, uh, Nixon called to talk to uh, Claire Boothless and uh, she did something that few Americans have ever done. You know, she said, "I can't come to the phone right now, Mr. President. You know, you know, I'll have to call you back." <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> As editor, when you became editor, how how were you able to predict what events were likely to become newsworthy enough to justify um, sort of the expense of sending reporters and photographers to cover them? For example, how did you decide to send a crew to Detroit before the 1967 riots? Um, well, I, I just want to be clear that I was not the I was not the editor of Life. I was a senior editor of Life, uh, running the news department at the end of the at the end of the magazine's tenure. But at the time of the of the Detroit um, uh, riot or uh, whatever one wants to call it, I was the Chicago bureau chief, and uh, you know we had stringers in in every city. We had people that worked sort of part-time who, if there was something going on or they heard, got wind of something going on, they would call us and alert us to the possibility of, of trouble. Um, the Detroit riot, I think, actually began very early in the morning, around 4 o'clock in the morning, when the police uh, raided one of these, um, these sort of illegal clubs that, that uh, had attracted a big crowd of people. They were, they were celebrating the safe return of a couple of soldiers from Vietnam. And uh, I guess the party went on beyond four o'clock, and the police uh, raided it, and it was uh, turned into a confrontation. So we knew pretty quickly that that it was probably going to escalate. There had been a lot of riots that summer around the country, um, and there would be more. So you know, we sent a small contingent right away, and then as as the trouble grew, we we sent more people in. But we could usually often you would have a sense that uh, something was going to happen uh, in a particular place and and kind of get ready. Um, and I know also the 60s being such a period of, um, I don't know, change and upheaval and both positive and, and destructive things happening. There was a lot going on and certainly a lot to cover. And then going into the 68 presidential campaign, you were assigned to write 3,000 words about what was at the time a fairly obscure senator from Minnesota seeking the presidency of the United States. Um, in your passion to see an end to the Vietnam War, did you forego journalistic neutrality when covering the candidacy of Eugene McCarthy? Well, I don't think I did. Um, I mean, I, I certainly was, uh, my own feelings about the war in Vietnam was that it that it was uh, probably illegal and, and probably futile, and I, I, I opposed the war uh, pretty much from the very beginning. I thought it was a bad idea. Uh, when McCarthy announced that he was going to uh, run against Johnson, and that, you know, a Democratic senator running against a Democratic, a sitting Democratic president, it was 
it was un- uh, sort of unprecedented. And uh, I went to cover McCarthy, and I I genuinely admired the man. I thought he was a, a really uh, intelligent, outstanding person. And uh, and so I wrote a very um, very positive and and I think probably to some degree flattering uh, piece about him. But my uh, my the editor that had uh, that was reading was was responsible for ultimately for the piece thought that I had been maybe too uh, too auditory and too too much on uh, made too good a case for McCarthy. So. He probably did think that I had um, maybe dropped some of my uh, journalistic uh, objectivity uh, and uh, maybe was going a little too far in trying to um, promote the the candidacy of of, um, of McCarthy. As you know, you know, uh, ultimately uh, McCarthy uh, between McCarthy's efforts uh, convinced Johnson not to run again, and he. He that spring announced that he wouldn't run again, uh, which brought Bobby Kennedy into the race, and then Bobby Kennedy was killed. And ultimately, after the at the Oscar of a convention in Chicago, the uh, you know Nixon was elected uh, president. Certainly, the 1968 um, election cycle was probably the most tumultuous in my lifetime. I was only three years old at the time, but. <laughs> <laughs> there hasn't really been anything like it, and I know there's some excitement maybe that the 2016 uh, uh, conventions will be interesting. I don't think they'll quite match 1968, but they could be the most interesting ones um, in the time since then, perhaps, hopefully without violence. But um, speaking of that, um, you did assign four reporter photographer teams to follow what was happening out in the streets during the 1968 uh, Democratic National Convention. Uh, had you expected violence to occur there? And, and tell us about what happened in the 17-minute um, sort of orgy of violence, which is now known widely as, as a police riot, although at the time I think a lot of people were, <laughs> I mean, a lot of the middle America may be sided with the police, unfortunately. But Well, we, yes, we did we did uh, anticipate violence. Um, I mean, the, we knew that the, some of the demonstrators, uh, some of the yippies and and, uh, and other people who who consider themselves radicals, uh, and I guess were radicals, um, came to town, and they came to town with the with the expressed idea of provoking the police. Uh, they wanted to provoke the police, and there's uh, probably no better police department, um, no more provocable police department than the Chicago Police Department. They were perfectly uh, prepared to be. Uh, to react, um, uh, Daly, uh, Mayor Daly wanted to have a, an orderly convention. He wanted to have um, Chicago look good uh, for the, during the convention, and he didn't want any he didn't want any uh, rattle rousers, any any radicals uh, messing up his town. And I think that uh, I think the police knew that, and so they. Um, they reacted very uh, quickly and violently to um, any provocation. I, th- I think the first thing that happened was um, the Yippies wanted to spend the night in a park in uh, downtown Chicago, and and they were denied a permit, so they stayed anyway. And the police uh, went into the park, and you know normally what you'd expect would be the police would go in and arrest the people in the park who were not who were in the park without a permit, so they would arrest them and haul them off to jail. 
But that's not what they did. What they did was they went into the park with their clubs and they just beat the hell out of everybody that was there and uh, tear gas them and they cleared the park. You know, eventually it was, there was nobody there. Uh, that sort of set the tone. You know, every time um, people were on the street, uh, it seemed like they would be attacked by uh, by the police. The police clubbed people that were standing on their porches. They, if you happened to be on the street, it didn't matter if you were a newsman, didn't matter what you were doing, you were somewhat in danger. Um, eventually, the, the, the thing you're referring to was uh, when the uh, police and the, and the demonstrators had a confrontation outside the Hilton Hotel, the police rushed them and pushed uh, people through a big plate glass window into the bar in the hotel. And then the police climbed through the broken window and started clubbing the people that were in the bar. I, I don't think anybody uh, denied that that, was, that part of it was a police riot. Um, but but I think you're right. I think a lot of people watching television either thought that uh, the demonstrators had it coming or that it was not as bad as it uh, seemed to be on TV. But um, it was it was a case, I believe, where the police were um, completely out of control. I'm not I'm not even sure that Daly had uh, I'm not even sure that Daly had said you know cool it guys if it would have made any difference because the the police really were pretty much out of control, in my in my view. It's kind of ironic, I suppose, that Daly wanted an orderly convention, and his zeal to have that kind of perhaps created the opposite. <laughs> so, I mean, well, you know, Dave, Daly was sort of famous for for malaprops. He would he would say yeah. say things that he he meant one thing and say another. He one of the things he said was, you know, the police are not here. Uh, to create disorder, the police are here to make, to to uh, what do you say? The police are not here to create disorder; they're here to preserve disorder. <laughs> preserve disorder, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he also said at the end of the thing, he said, "I have been vilified, I have been crucified, I have even been criticized." <laughs> <laughs> Masterful understatement. <laughs> yeah. All of that said, I think with I mean, I think that daily. Uh, if you look at his entire career as mayor of Chicago, I think he did a lot of, um, of amazing things. He was a very effective politician, and I think that in many respects he was good for Chicago. But uh, the, the convention was, a, was a, a real blot on his record as far as I'm concerned. Um, and tell us a little about, about uh, life's decision to publish ex-Army photographer Ron Haberly's Picture of the My Lai Massacre. Um, how did you come to believe that the photos were genuine, and how were you able to verify that hunch? Well, I, you know, I got a I got a call from a reporter for Cleveland Plain Dealer who said that that he was working with a photographer who had been in in Vietnam and had taken pictures of this this massacre. We there there have been some news stories about the massacre, but but there had been no photographic evidence. Um, of its occurrence, it was you know it was all testimony. And uh, when we realized that there were there were photographs of this of this event, or probably photographs of this event, we we were obviously very interested. And we got him to come to New York, and we looked at the pictures, and they were pretty horrible. Um, you know, it was essentially a lot of Vietnamese civilians, including children and babies and old men and women, um, you know, being killed. And 
or having been killed. Um, we there were several issues immediately. One was, you know, were they genuine? Did this really happen? And did did the pictures show what Haverly said they showed? Um, we made black and white uh, copies of all the pictures, and we identified all the people who had been in, in Lieutenant Kelly's uh, platoon. And we had correspondents take steps of these pictures out to the soldiers that had been there and, and you know, show them the pictures and say, you know, do you recognize these? Did this happen? And, you know, without exception, they said, yes, you know, this happened. And, I, and many of them were really upset about it. They were ashamed. Uh, some of them cried. It was, it was one soldier was on the porch when he looked at these pictures and he took them inside and said, look, Grandma, I want you to see what we had to do in Vietnam. You know, it was um, it was that kind of a very emotional thing. So we knew they were we knew they were real. Then the question became, you know, should we print them? There were some people said it's treason to print these pictures. This will undermine the war effort. Um, other people said this war has been conducted on the basis of body count. You know. They, Johnson and others have said, we, we, we know whether we're winning the war or not by how many people we kill. And um, it, it seemed that this kind of behavior, these are American troops operating under orders, killing people that are clearly civilians. This is not the way America conducts wars, or certainly not the way we think that we ought to conduct wars. So, you know, did this was this an outgrowth of this policy of, of, of counting bodies? Um, it, it seemed clear to me and to, uh, I think, a majority of the editors at the magazine that that the American public needed to see these pictures. They needed to know what this policy had led to. And um, so we did. We, we printed the pictures. We didn't put it on the cover. I, I think that was right because I think it, we should spare. You know, when the magazine arrives at someone's house, Mama or Daddy ought to be able to look at the magazine and decide whether they want the children to see it or not. And if it's on the cover, that's makes it pretty hard to do that. Uh, we didn't print the worst pictures. We we printed, we, we converted some to black and white so they weren't quite as as graphic. But there wasn't any question if you looked at those pictures what had happened and that it was a, a, a real shame. Um, sure. They, you know, we had some people said, you know, you got to buy those pictures and lock them up so nobody ever sees them, which was, which I thought was an outrageous suggestion, frankly. <laughs> I mean, it did happen. So, I mean, as a journalist, you know, but be a journalist. That's not what you do as a journalist. You don't hide information from people. Right. And um, back in the state senate in in uh, 1970, how did the August 26, 1970, women's strike for equality change things forever at the magazine? <laughs> well, we. It, we, it took us by it took a lot of us by surprise. There, you know, the, I guess women had planned this this strike for equality for a long time. They didn't want to talk about it, but I personally had not paid much of attention and uh, much attention, and I don't think a lot of other people did. But you know, there was a there was a, a on a given day we looked around suddenly, and there were there weren't any women in the office. The place was, you know, I, first I thought there just weren't any women in the area that I was working in, and. And then I started kind of looking around and realized there weren't any women anywhere. And so then it was like, well, where are all the women? What happened? And, uh, it, you know, they said, oh, they're, they're, they're marching. They're all out on Fifth Avenue marching for equality. And uh, that was kind of the first time, you know, that I became aware of it. Um, that was when Betty Friedan said, uh, you know, 
don't iron while the strike is hot. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, later that day, the, the women came back and they were excited and, and uh, they were encouraged and they were, I think, sort of unified about uh, what they needed and wanted. And um, women had had always been treated well at life. There, there were a lot of uh, very senior editors who were women uh, who had great uh, influence. Uh, but it was still not uh, – they weren't fully equal at the, in the magazine, and they were certainly a glass ceiling. There were no – there were no women in the uh, in the really upper echelons of Time Inc. at that time. And uh, after that day, uh, the managing editor Ralph Graves made made a real effort to create more uh, positions uh, of responsibility for women, and to uh, to promote more women and to consolidate other uh, some of the functions um, under women's under the direction of women. Uh, so. Uh, it was effective. It improved. Uh, it improved the situation. It uh, certainly at life. At the end of the decade, or, or after the '60s and into the '70s, what uh, what finally or sort of ultimately sank Life Magazine? Um, I think that starting in the late '50s, when television tried to to report news. Um, it, it, it created a, a, comp- a competition for life because you know life had 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 a monopoly really on on showing people news and showing people the world in pictures. Uh, if you wanted to know what was going on in World War II, you really had to look at Life magazine. I mean, if you wanted to know visually, if you wanted to see pictures of life of World War II, you had pretty much had to go to a Life magazine. Uh, there were newsreels, but also produced by Time Inc. By the way. Uh, time marches on, I think, and some others. But as TV got better at, at reporting news, and as TV developed color television, it made it harder and harder for life to uh, to report news. Uh, I mean, we could report news, but you know, something big would happen. You'd see it on TV that night. It would be maybe a week before you saw it in Life magazine. So it it kind of cut us out of the news business in a way. Um, the magazine was still very popular, but advertisers were, you know, were wanting to to um, they wanted big audiences for for the lowest price. That that is sort of the nature of it. And so, if TV could offer them, you know, 10 million viewers or 15 million viewers at a at a low price, uh, and Life was offering maybe the same number of viewers but at a higher price. They tended to uh, to gravitate to, to television um, in in those cases, and and uh, so the margin uh, at life uh, between profit and loss uh, started to narrow. The magazine was very expensive to produce and to run, and I think the corporate uh, the, the business people in the corporation were worried that if if life ever really um, Started to lose money, it would lose such huge amounts of money that it could be dangerous to the corporation. Um, it just the business model uh, really uh, uh, was outdated by the time uh, by 1972. Uh, it just could not really compete with um, with TV for for ad dollars. We were advertising the same kind of things, you know, life and TV. You advertise cars and. Aspirin and 
and um, in those days, cigarettes, um, these, these kind of con, you know common consumer products that were mass market uh, uh, advertising. So um, they just couldn't uh, just couldn't keep running it at profit. And so in 1972, in the end of 1972, um, they closed it as a weekly. It, it came back in various forms periodically after that, but. Uh, it was the end of the great flagship, you know, of photojournalism. I guess we covered a, a decade in about 30 minutes, so that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> I have a lot of interesting stories told through pictures, and we're trying to talk about a picture magazine on radio, so hopefully hopefully some of it translated without the visuals. But uh, I wanted to thank you again so much uh, for taking the time to interview with us, and, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy the show and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day and a great weekend as well. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I really, I really enjoyed talking about it and, uh, and and I hope you have a good day too. You know, Bye. And that was Gerald Moore, former uh, editor and uh, with Life Magazine and um, so I hope you enjoyed the interview, a little bit of history there and uh, some contemporary relevance as well. Um, on that note, uh, we'll call it a night, uh, and uh, we thank you again for listening to Liberal Fix Radio, and hope you'll tune in again next Friday, and thank you again for joining us, and hope you all have a safe and wonderful weekend. Thank you so much. <laughs>